0: I've titled today Ezekiel chapter 21, The Grieving God. We'll pray and we'll get started. Thank you, Father, for the beautiful opportunity to spend time with other believers and to fellowship with each other. Lord, I just pray that you'll open our hearts and we know that the Bible is a spiritual book, only be revealed to us by your Holy Spirit working in us giving us the understanding. So we just pray that that will happen today, that as we read your word, you will give us the understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So I've titled today Ezekiel chapter 21, The Grieving God. We'll find out why as we go through. I'll keep you in suspense for a bit. Let's do the memory verse first. So Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26 and 27. I will give you a new heart, and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So just spending a bit of time in the memory verse. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. How do we get to that place? What does it take? What was that Galatians verse we just read? Or sung? It's faith. Yeah, born again initially, yeah. But we do that by faith. If we are depending on God, then he will live his life through us. And he will give us the strength to follow him. And the commandments, instead of being You shall not, it's you shall. The commandments are God's promises to us that you can be pure, you can be honest, you can be faithful, etc. So let's go back a little bit. Revision and introduction. So just to set the scene here with what's going on back in the day of Ezekiel and Israel and Babylon and all that kind of thing. So time is ticking on, the years are passing by It's closer than ever to D-Day. Closer to the day when the Babylonian army will attack and destroy Jerusalem in 586 BC. So, in chapter 20, we saw God compare the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem to that of a bushfire raging through a dry forest. Now, you know what that's like. It burns up every tree and even the green trees. And we learned last week that that represented the righteous people too. Now the image switches to a sword, a flashing sword, which leaves no survivors, not even the king of Judah. And the sword, we will find, represents the Babylonian army, which is literally on their way to Jerusalem. So as we've been going through, you wonder, well, we keep hearing about this judgment's about to come. Well, it's getting real close. We're going to find today that they're literally on their way. So in this account, we also see how God is affected by the pain misery and death of his people. So even though God is instigating this judgment and he's in control of it, it doesn't mean that he enjoys it. It doesn't mean that he likes it. So God is blessed when we willingly obey him, but he's grieved when we disobey. So sin hurts us, but it hurts God much more. And the greatest example of this is obviously... The cross. So I'm just going to read a bit from Isaiah. Just so we can understand the heart of God. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6 from the NLT. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away, we have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. So we'll come back to that as we go through. Now, verses 1 to 5, I call this the sword of the Lord against Judah. Judah is a southern kingdom of Israel. So at this time, the northern kingdom has already been taken captive like 100 years before, and Judah is the only remaining part of Israel. So it says this, And the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, Set your face toward Jerusalem, preach against the holy places, and prophesy against the land of Israel, and say to the land of Israel, Thus says the Lord Behold, I am against you, and I will draw my sword out of its sheath, and cut off both righteous and wicked from you, because I will cut off both righteous and wicked from you. Therefore, my sword shall go out of its sheath against all flesh, from south to north that all flesh may know that I, the Lord, have drawn my sword out of its sheath, it shall not return any more. So it's interesting. We're talking about the people of Israel here, and it says in verse 3, Behold, I am against you. Ooh. So just because the people of Israel were, are, and always will be, God's chosen people, that doesn't mean that God won't discipline them for their rebellions against him. In the same way, if us as believers continue to sin, we too will find ourselves fighting against God. So why does God need to discipline us? Well, as we've looked at before, it's a problem of the heart. If we persist in sin, our hearts become hard, and hard hearts must be broken. And Hebrews says this, Hebrews 3.13 Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And I like the image of the potter and the clay. Because it shows how God works with us. How God works with Israel is the same way as he works with us. So the only way for God to work with a persistently unfaithful nation or believer is to crush them, to crush the marred or imperfect clay vessel in his hands and start over. And this is why God has to break us when we are persistently unfaithful towards him. He is breaking our hard hearts so that we can begin to hear from and respond to him again. And that's what he's doing with the nation of Israel. So let's read that passage from Jeremiah about the potter and the clay. Jeremiah eighteen one to 6 from the NLT again. The Lord gave another message to Jeremiah. He said, Go down to the potter's shop, and I will speak to you there. So I did as he told me, and found the potter working at his wheel. But the jar he was making did not turn out as he had hoped. So he crushed it into a lump of clay again and started over. Then the Lord gave me this message O Israel, can I not do to you as this potter has done to his clay? As the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. So I just want to pull out three things from this awesome passage in Jeremiah God's discipline hurts. <laughs> Who likes being crushed or broken? None of us, right? But why did he do it? So we can start again. Okay. And when he says again, guess what? This can happen more than once. So God promises to persevere with us, breaking or crushing us and starting over as many times as he needs to until we learn to submit to him and allow him to transform us into his image. And that's God's end game. That's God's plan. That our purpose for living is to become like him. Through relationship with him. The second thing I get from this is hope. Because of God's great mercy, there is always the chance to start over. God doesn't throw away the imperfect jar, but instead he starts over again And again, and as we've been looking at the history of the nation of Israel, God has crushed them and remade them multiple times. (laughs) And we also know that God has promised multiple times that they will, at the second coming, be fully submitted to Him and walk in righteousness with Him. So, this is our story, too. We, too, are like the children of Israel, where it's a bit of a bumpy road, where and bouncing around you know a foot in the world walking with God part of the time but God has a plan for us that one day we will be completely walking with him and of course when does that happen when we go to be with him right and until then this process continues yeah so eternal security These words were really special to me. As the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. So no matter how stubborn or difficult the clay is to work with, it remains in God's hands. God will eventually make what he wants out of us. Nothing is too hard for God. He will complete the work in us which he has begun. Philippians 1.6 And a couple of verses which help us to grasp hold of this, what it means to be in the hands of God. John ten twenty seven 27-30 My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So once you're in God's hands, once you're adopted into his family, you're there for good. Why? Because our sin can't separate us. We are, as I said before during worship, we are positionally righteous. All our sins, past, present and future, have been forgiven. And it doesn't matter how bad we mess up once we're a Christian, we'll receive that forgiveness. Of course, we make life very difficult for ourselves and it's foolish to do that, But and God has to crush us and the crushing is more painful, but we're still in his hands. And Romans eight thirty one to 34 it says this, What then shall we say to these things, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, I just want to stop there for a sec. We just read in the passage today, in Ezekiel 21, verse 3, that God said, I am against you. So how do we reconcile this passage in Romans, where it says, God is not against us. The implication, the answer to the question is no one can be against us. God is for us. No one can be against us. Well, practically speaking, we can be fighting against God, right? Practically speaking, we can be in rebellion against God, but still be his child. And so we can be fighting against God, going against God, and so God is against us because we're rebelling, we're sinning but God's heart is still for us and he never stops seeing us as perfect and accepted in his family. So we'll continue reading from Romans 8 and we'll see how this acceptance, the God being for us, is referring to our position in Christ. So, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? No one. It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? No one. It is Christ who died. And furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So we can't be condemned. We can't be accused. Well, we can be accused, but it's not going to stand in God's court because it is God who justifies. Righteous in his sight. So these verses from Romans affirm that as believers we have eternal right standing with God. We are justified. God will forever see his adopted children as perfectly righteous in a legal or positional sense. One day we will be practically perfect as well. Does that make sense? When Jesus comes back and we lose our sin nature, we will be practically perfect as well. That's the end game, that's the goal. But for now, we are positionally righteous and that's why there is no condemnation for believers because God sees us as being perfect. He sees us as being in Christ. Christ's perfect life has been credited to our account and he sees us as having lived a perfect life despite the reality of our situation down here. So, verse 4 says, I will draw my sword out of its sheath So, who's the sword? What's the tool that God is using for judgment? It's the Babylonian army, right? God is reminding them that this judgment was from Him and that it's also being controlled and directed by Him. So, when we are persistently unfaithful towards God, He will often use natural means to discipline us and bring us low. You know, it could be financial, relationship, whatever it might be. So, we need to remember. That these circumstances are directed by God, and are therefore working for our good, you know, producing the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And of course, Hebrews twelve seven through eleven tells us that it doesn't feel good. No correction, no discipline feels good at the time, but it's worth it. In verse four, and cut off both righteous and wicked. So we need to understand that this is a national and temporary judgment and so everyone in the nation was affected in jeremiah chapter 24 it gives us this parable of the good figs and the bad figs the good figs were the more righteous people and they were removed from jerusalem and judah and taken to babylon the bad figs were the more unrighteous people and they were left in jerusalem now why did god do that well the most severe judgments, the war, famine, and disease would occur in Judah and Jerusalem. But still, all the people suffered, right? They either suffered in Jerusalem or they went to Babylon as slaves and suffered there, but in a different way. You consider Daniel and Ezekiel. Do you think they would have rather stayed home in their home country? You Imagine what it would be like taking to China or something, you know, working one of their sweatshops. You'd rather be home in Australia, yeah? So, here's a quote from a guy called Smith. The teaching here regarding the cutting off of both righteous and wicked does not contradict the teaching of chapter 18, that only the soul that sins shall die. That's Ezekiel 18 verse 20. The former passage spoke of final judgment, while this passage speaks of temporal judgment. As regards to final judgment, the righteous will not be destroyed along with the wicked. In temporal judgments, however, both often suffer equally. So I've got an application here to dig into this a bit. It's called sin's collateral damage. (laughs) You know, in war, if you have collateral damage, it means civilians are killed when they're trying to strike a military target or something. So here, with God cutting off both the righteous and the wicked, is a good example of how the sins of one person or a group of people affect those around them. So, for example, you have a godly wife with godly kids, but the husband runs off with a woman and causes a huge amount of grief and pain for the family. Now, did the wife and kids do anything wrong to deserve this brutal and painful rejection? No, that's sin's collateral damage. We don't exist in isolation. Everything we do affects those around us, for good or for evil. So just remember that as we fellowship because we are part of Christ's body and we either are blessing people by what we do or we are a curse to others. We cause them pain. So everything we do does make a difference. First Corinthians twelve twenty four to 27, it says, But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. So 1 Corinthians 12, 24-27. Moving on to verse 5. That all flesh may know that I, the Lord, have drawn my sword. And I quote from David Guzik. The magnitude and severity of God's judgment would be revelation to the watching world they would know that only God himself could be behind such a great judgment. The forest fire of Ezekiel 20 becomes a sword which will slay the righteous and the wicked, just as a fire would burn both green and dry tree. So remember, God uses Israel as his light to the world, yeah? And in verse 5 it says, God's sword shall not return any more." So this speaks of God's great patience with his people. 2 Peter 3 9. God is patient with us because he wants more people to come to repentance. And when it says his sword shall not return anymore, it means he's not going to hold back anymore. He's going to have to go ahead and judge, even if he doesn't want to. Okay, remember, God doesn't enjoy judging people. But you know, if we don't repent if we are persistent in our unfaithfulness and we refuse to humble ourselves before god then what i've called the knockout judgment will come something that they or we cannot ignore something that will force us and like the israelis it will force them to come to their senses and we might call this today hitting rock bottom or reaching the end of ourselves so God will do something that where we can't keep on running, we can't keep putting it off. We can't keep on sinning and just saying it'll be all right. God will give us the knockout judgment. God says, My sword should not return anymore. Remember, there's been warnings after warnings after warnings. There's been minor judgments. There's been two captivities already, you know, but now the knockout judgment is coming. And now we come to this next section where it says in verse six and seven, and I've called this sin breaks God's heart. So I just read it, it says, Sigh therefore, son of man, with a breaking heart, and sigh with bitterness before their eyes, and it shall be when they say to you, Why are you sighing? That you shall answer because of the news when it comes, every heart will melt, all hands will be feeble, every spirit will faint and all knees will be as weak as water. Behold, it is coming, and shall be brought to pass, says the Lord. So this knockout judgment is coming. But does God enjoy doing this? Well, I read those verses from Isaiah at the start, just to show us that sin really does hurt God. And here, God is telling Ezekiel to sigh with a breaking heart. And a quote from David Guzik, God did not want Ezekiel to be an unemotional messenger of judgment. God wanted the heart of the prophet to display the same breaking heart that God himself had. So, applying this to us sharing the gospel, what is the gospel? Well, in a nutshell, we're telling people that if they don't repent and believe, you know, repent of their sins and believe that Jesus' death was the full payment for the sins of all mankind... They're going to hell. Now, if we have genuine love and concern for them, then they are very likely to listen to our message. But if we are arrogant and we're looking down on them, we think we're better than them, we've got a hard heart ourselves, they're going to be repulsed by us and they will reject the message. So the words can be the same. But the heart makes all the difference, so you know I've spoken to people, and even if they don't agree with me, they still appreciate the care and concern that I have for them when I really do care for them, you know, and as we speak to them, they can see our attitude, they can see our heart, and they will see Christ in us, and they'll be drawn to christ and john thirteen thirty five part of that verse says all will know that you are my disciples if you have love. So God doesn't want Ezekiel to be like arrogant and you know putting these guys down and you know saying you're dumb, how come you haven't repented? And No. God wants Ezekiel to communicate his own pain. So i have got an application here I've called it to the end of ourselves. So we are got to just focus on this concept of God bringing us to the end of ourselves so that we come to our senses and repent of our sin and self-sufficiency. So we got those four phrases there, or five, with a breaking heart. Every heart will melt, all hands will be feeble, every spirit will faint, and all knees will be as weak as water. And all these work together to help us to understand what it means to come to the end of ourselves. So first of all, we'll take verse 7. Every heart will melt, all hands will be feeble, every spirit will faint, and all knees will be weak as water. So overall, there's going to be great panic, great fear, distress, and terror. So much so that they will literally wet themselves. That's what it means by their knees will be as weak as water. When we come to verse 6, this is the emotional part of it, with a breaking heart, a quote from Taylor, This is literally breaking loins, a phrase expressing deep emotional distress. The loins were regarded as the seat of strength, and so this represents complete nervous and physical collapse. And there's other references there in your notes. So take note of that. And so this represents complete nervous and physical collapse. Another quote, literally means breaking of loins so breaking heart means breaking of loins loins in the old testament are viewed as a center of physical strength and the seat of emotions when they are broken the strength is gone and one is helpless the emotions are shattered and that is from alexander so personally i've been there a few times it's not a nice place to be but it's not in vain. The pain was not in vain. Why? Because because of those experiences, I'm walking closer to the Lord now than before. And hopefully, I can learn my lesson so I can humble myself willingly instead of God having to crush me. Now, one more thing before we move on. This broken state, this crushed State is not always a result of sin, and just quickly we'll consider Job. He was crushed by God, and one of the reasons was so he would come to a much deeper understanding and appreciation of God. He went through this massive trial, you know, losing his kids, losing his possessions, and the physical pain and sickness he went through. But if you ask Job, he would not have had it any other way. He didn't like it going through the trial. He was complaining to God sometimes. But after the trial, once he had come to this greater realization of who God was, then he'd say, nah, that was worth it. And any godly person at the end of their life, after they've been through like a hard marriage and they've been faithful to, you know, be, um, true to their unbelieving husband or or, or whatever it might be, they have had a hard life. But at the end of their life, they're stronger. They don't regret their life. Their life has given them the opportunity to grow. And consider Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, none of them were in a hurry to get out of the fiery furnace when they were literally in the direct presence of God. So, When a believer learns to depend upon God to a greater degree, it always results in greater joy. A joy that the world can never take away. A joy that is not dependent on circumstances. So greater faith leads to greater joy. Greater dependency, greater faith leads to greater joy. And so that's the purpose of it all. Greater abiding, greater joy. As it says in John 15, Now, moving on to verse 7. Because of the news, when it comes, every heart will melt. Now, how many times did the people need to be told by Jeremiah and Ezekiel that the judgment, the Babylonian army, was coming? How many times would it take before they would listen? Well, you could tell them a billion times, a zillion times, but they would not hear. They were deaf to God's voice their hearts were really hard and their ears were so spiritually deaf that only the actual judgment itself would get their attention. It's the ultimate wake-up call. It's the knockout judgment, yeah? And so this can be true for us also, often by not repenting when first convicted. Our hearts grow hard and therefore we don't take God seriously when he says he hates sin and will discipline us if we continue in it. We then continue on a merry way until we hit rock bottom when God crushes us in order to reset us. You know, we have this great reset going on in the world and trying to do that in a very secular way. But God wants to get our attention, stop us going down that path that's going to lead to destruction, our own destruction, not eternal destruction, but destruction of our relationship with other people and, and everything else that God has given us. And he wants to reset us so we can turn back to him. And verse 7, Behold, it is coming, and shall be brought to pass. So God's judgment of sin is certain. Those who refuse to humble themselves will suffer. And there's two ways. For the unbeliever is eternal damnation. And for the believer, and for the nation of Israel, will experience God's discipline. And moving on to verses 8 through 17, the prophecy of God's sword. Babylon. Now, verses 8 to 10 first, and I've titled this little section, Should We Then Make Mirth? or well, that means laugh, have fun. Yeah? Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, say, A sword, a sword is sharpened and also polished, sharpened to make a dreadful slaughter, polished to flash like lightning. Should we then make mirth? It despises the scepter of my son, as it does all wood. So, the judgment is imminent. God saw the Babylonian army is coming, literally. We'll find that in a minute. And when they come, it will be the end of the line of kings of Judah. It despises the scepter. The scepter represents the ruling king. And that is until Jesus comes a second time. But what were the Israelites doing? God is warning them that all this trouble is coming. What do they do? They're making mirth. They're complacent. They have this false confidence that Babylonians would not be able to defeat Jerusalem. A false confidence that as God's chosen people, they could continue to live for themselves without consequence. God will protect. And a quote from Feinberg. In view of the fearful prospect, Ezekiel asked whether this was the hour for mirth. An hour of enjoyment and complacency. The implication was that any imagined basis for confidence was false. Now, I want to apply this to our world today, the complacency or delusion of the unbelievers in this world, in this Christ-rejecting world. First Peter four, three to five, and you'll see the complacency in these verses regarding the unbelievers. You have had enough. In the past, of evil things that godless people enjoy their immorality and lust, their feasting and drunkenness and wild parties, and their terrible worship of idols. Of course, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things they do, so they slander you. But remember that they will have to face God, who stands. Ready to judge everyone, both the living and the dead. So, can you see how this world is very complacent? As it says in their verse, they are enjoying life. Should we make mirth? Should we just have fun? They're ignoring God's warnings, just like the Israelites did. But unfortunately, their judgment is eternal. So, that's our job to get out there and to. Share the gospel. Now, in verses eleven through seventeen, I've called this, and I will cause my fury to rest. So let's read those verses. And he has given it to be polished, that is the sword, that it may be handled. This sword is sharpened, and it is polished to be given into the hand of the slayer, that's King of Babylon. Cry and wail, son of man. Now we've been through this before, I'm not going to go back through it again. For it would be against my people, against all the princes of Israel. Terrors, including this sword, will be against my people. Therefore strike your thigh, because it is a testing. And what if the sword despises even the scepter? The scepter shall be no more. And we talked about that, the king being dethroned. says the Lord God, You therefore, son of man, prophesy, strike your hands together. The third time let the sword do double damage. It is a sword that slays, the sword that slays a great men, that enters their private chambers. I have set the point of the sword against all their gates, that the heart may melt and many may stumble. Ah, it is made bright, it is grasped for slaughter. Swords at the ready, thrust right, set your blade, thrust left, wherever your edge is ordered. I will also beat my fists together, and it will cause my fury to rest. I, the Lord, have spoken. So in verse 11 it says, To be given into the hands of the slayer. So who's that again? It's the Babylonian army led by Nebuchadnezzar. And in verse 14 it says, This time let the sword do double damage. So this is the third time that Nebuchadnezzar has come to Judah and Jerusalem. The third time he's invaded. But the first two times, God didn't let him do much damage. Remember, who's controlling this sword? God is, alright? So the first two times, Nebuchadnezzar went there, God only allowed him to take some captives and to take some spoil, but basically everything was left intact. The third time is going to be different double damage. There will be complete carnage and total destruction. People are eating their babies, people will be dying of disease, people be slaughtered by the sword in war. It's not going to be a pretty picture. It's not going to be a good time to live. And verse 17, I will cause my fury to rest. Now, when I was younger, one of the songs that helped me when I was going through hard times was a Petra song. And one of the words, the lyrics was, this trial will last as long as it takes to pass. And The good thing about God is that he doesn't hold his anger forever. Because of his merciful nature, he's always ready to shower us again with his loving kindness when we return to him. So we must always remember that God's discipline is temporary, but his favor is forever. And I just want to show you how God reassures his people Israel and also us. It says in Isaiah 54, 7-8, for a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. And another verse concerning Israel and Jeremiah 31 verses 33 to 37 for the NLT. But this is the new. Covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days. Okay, in the end days, in the end times, God will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. Now we get to enjoy that now, but they will get to enjoy it when Jesus comes back at his second coming. So is God going to give up on his people? Do you think? Is he going to give up on his people, Israel? He's just made a promise that he's going to bring them into the new covenant. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, You should know the Lord, for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already, says the Lord. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. So, yeah, God is judging them now, but again, what's it for? It's to bring them into this place where they walk with him. And God is promising that they will. And verse 35, It is the Lord who provides the sun to light the day and the moon, and the stars to light the night, who stirs the sea into roaring waves. His name is the Lord of heaven's armies, and this is what he says. I am as likely to reject my people Israel as I am to abolish the laws of nature. So is God going to abolish the laws of nature anytime soon? No, of course not, right? This is what the Lord says. Just as the heavens cannot be measured and the foundations of the earth cannot be explored, so I will not consider casting them away for the evil they have done. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now why would God give them that kind of reassurance? How do you think they were feeling as they were heading into this judgment, as they are going through this judgment? Do you think they might have felt a bit forsaken when we go and hit that rock bottom place? Could we feel forsaken, like God has given up on us, that God doesn't want anything to do with us anymore? We can feel like that, but it's not true. And we can put ourselves in there. I am likely to reject David as I am to abolish the laws of nature. <laughs> you know, as a believer, you know, I will not be rejected by God. No matter how much I mess up, God will not reject me from being his child. And another assurance that God gives us is in Psalm 103, 8-14. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. So, not as much as he could or should, but he's very merciful. Very gentle. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame; he remembers that we are dust. So when we go through these times where you know we walk away from the Lord and we're disciplined, keep these verses in mind. Remember that the discipline will not last forever. His anger will not last forever. But his mercy will. And we go on to verses 18 to 23, and I've called this section a demonstration of God's sovereignty. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, And son of man, appoint for yourself two ways for the sword of the king of Babylon to go. That is the army, right? Both of them shall go from the same land, that is Babylon. Make a sign, put it at the head of the road to the city. Appoint a road for the sword to go to Rabbah of the Ammonites and to Judah into fortified Jerusalem. So there's the two choices. You can go left or right. One will take you to Rabbah of the Ammonites and the other way will take you to Judah, into Jerusalem. For the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the road. As I said, he's almost there. The judgment is really imminent now. For the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the road, at the fork of the two roads, to use divination. He shakes the arrows. He consults the images. He looks at the liver. In his right hand is a divination for Jerusalem. So guess what? He chose Jerusalem. So he goes down to Jerusalem, to set up battering rams, to call for a slaughter, to lift the voice with shouting, to set battering rams against the gates, to heap up a siege mound and build a wall, and it will be to them, like the Israelites, like a false divination in the eyes of those who have sworn oaths with them, because they made promises with the king of Babylon, right? And they've broken those promises, but he will bring their iniquity to remembrance that they may be taken so, verse 19, appoint for yourself two ways for the sword of the king of Babylon to go. So, literally, God's sword, Nebuchadnezzar, and the armies of Babylon were on the move. And he's at the crossroads. You know, imagine this massive army, thousands and thousands and thousands of men with their equipment and everything. Which way do we go? What does he do? As a pagan king, who does he ask? Well, he asks his gods. And is it his decision to make? That's the question I'm going to ask now. Nebuchadnezzar is there at the crossroad and he's deciding which way to go. But is he really deciding? Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. So, as we mentioned before, God is in control of this. The king thinks he's in control, but God is telling him, No, I'm in control. I'm directing you where I want you to go. You are my tool. I've given you this job of judging my people, of disciplining them. In verse 19, it says, Make a sign. And Block says, The use of yad or hand, literally hand. For a signpost, suggest a road sign on which is carved the form of a hand with fingers pointing in the direction specified. So imagine Ezekiel carving with a bit of wood a hand and placing the hand on the road, literally, go this way. And at the parting of the road, he shakes the arrows, consults the images, he looks at the liver. These are some of the pagan methods of divination to decide which way to go. So shaking the arrows is basically casting lots. you got two different arrows and they would believe that the gods would cause them to pick the right one. And he consults the images. This is interesting. I read this quote and basically you know how you have a, a listening wall where someone whispers and the other person the other in the wall can hear it. It's just got that exact right curve in it and the sound travels along. Well that's what they do with some of their idols, apparently. A priest would be unseen by the king or the worshipper, and the worshipper would speak to the idol, and this priest or whoever would you know, whisper, and the sound would come, sound like the idol was speaking. And so they would tell the person whatever they wanted to hear. And looking at the liver, this is an interesting one, a quote from Vorder and Hop. Here we have a truly authentic Babylonian divinatory process which had come into Canaan. A science had grown up around this divinatory technique. It also spawned a professional priesthood that confidently predicted a proper course of action by examining the color and the internal segmentation of livers of newly slaughtered animals. (laughs) See the foolishness of what they were doing? That's if you don't have God, where are you going to go? Where are you going to get your direction from now? What do people do today? Well, horoscopes. How many people use a hor? I mean, I don't. I hope you guys don't. But <laughs> in my secular workplaces, a lot of people talk about the horoscope, fortune tellers, tarot cards, Ouija boards, sciences, or even a word from a false prophet. So, if God wishes, He can overrule any one of these. Methods of false divination, but today, just think about, you know, what people do to try and figure out the direction. What's another place they can go to get direction? Counseling, worldly counsel. Now, verse twenty-two: In his right hand is the divination for Jerusalem. So God directs Nebuchadnezzar to go to Jerusalem. And verse twenty-three: It would be to them Judah like a false divination. They would have been praying for God to stop Nebuchadnezzar from coming. They would go to Ammon instead, and you know destroy the Ammonites. They would have thought that the pagan gods had overridden God, like a false divination. But it was actually God's will that they went to Jerusalem. And in verses twenty-four to twenty-seven, I've titled this, "God exalts the humble, but humbles the proud." Therefore, thus says the Lord God: Because you have made your iniquity, your sin, to be remembered, in that your transgressions are uncovered so that in all your doings your sins appear, because you have come to remembrance, you shall be taken in hand. Now to you, O profane, wicked prince of Israel, whose day has come, whose iniquity shall end. Thus says the Lord God, Remove the turban and take off the crown. Nothing shall remain the same. Exalt the humble and humble the exalted. Overthrown, overthrown, I will make it. Overthrown, it shall be no longer until he comes whose right it is, and I will give it to him. This is an amazing few verses. We'll get into it. Because you've made your iniquity to be remembered. So they weren't hiding their sin. They're not ashamed. They had no desire to obey God. The people, including the king, were proud, arrogant, and haughty. And what does God say about how does he describe the king? Now to you, O profane, wicked prince of Israel. God will not let this sin go unpunished. Whose day has come, whose iniquity shall end. (laughs) That's a pretty scary thought, isn't it? Your day will come when God will judge you. Numbers says your sin will find you out. So those who persist in unfaithfulness will be shamed and ashamed. Now it says life will never be the same. This is true for the children of Israel. Remove the turban and take off the crown. So the turban was worn by the high priest. And basically, once the temple was destroyed, there would be no more priesthood. And take off the crown, which was worn by the king, and that refers to King Zedekiah being dethroned. So he would no longer be king, he'd be taken captive. And so nothing would be the same. They would lose their king, they would lose their priesthood, Things were not looking good. And then in verse 26 it says, Exalt the humble and humble the exalted. And if you read the other scriptures in Second um, Kings and Jeremiah, this could be a prophecy regarding Zedekiah being humbled, because he was very proud. But the previous king who was taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar, Jeconiah, he was later on in his captivity freed from prison and He was exalted above all the captive kings. So the main thing, though, I think the application is that God humbling the proud and exalting the humble is a principle all through the Scriptures. And I've got a whole lot of verses there for you. So it's better to humble ourselves willingly than God having to crush us. Better to bow the knee to Jesus willingly than to be forced to bow when it's too late. You know, the Bible says that every knee will bow. Everyone will be humbled. God will humble the proud. Everyone, when they stand before Christ, will have to bow their knee, whether they're saved or not. Now, In verse 27, we have a really important verse. This is a messianic prophecy concerning the second coming of Christ. It says, I will make it overthrown. It shall be no longer until he comes, whose right it is, and I will give it to him. What's it talking about? Well, it's talking about the scepter. It's talking about who's king. right? It's talking about the king of Israel. So basically what this means is that from the time when King Nebuchadnezzar defeated and humbled King Zedekiah, there will be no more kings in Jerusalem ruling over Israel until Jesus comes at his second coming and sets up his kingdom on earth. So only Jesus has his right until whose right it is, yeah? And only Jesus is worthy to take the scroll and loose the seven seals. And you can see that in Revelation 5. A couple of quotes to make this clear. First one from McGee. From Zedekiah down to the Lord Jesus... There has been no one in the line of David who ever sat on the throne. Ezekiel is saying that no one would ever be able to do so. The Lord Jesus is the only one who will. Right now he is sitting at God's right hand, waiting until his enemies are made his footstool when he comes to this earth to rule. And from Feinberg, The coming of the Lord for his church in the rapture is recalled in every celebration of the Lord's supper till he come. Remember we pray that? We say that when we read those verses, till he come, do this, Jesus says, do this until I come. Israel also has an until he come. The Messiah will restore access to God in high priestly ministry and righteous rule in royal ministry. When? When he comes back at the second coming. So they're looking forward to the second coming, we're looking forward to the rapture. Again, grace. When does God give this awesome promise that the king, the scepter, would be restored to Israel? When they are at their lowest. Did they deserve this? No. Do we deserve anything God gives us? No. (laughs) But this is also good news for the church. Not only would Israel once more have a king, and the king would be God himself, ruling over the entire earth. Why is it good news for us? Well, we come back with him and we reign with him for a thousand years, along with the Israelites, while Jesus is reigning on the earth. So I'm going to read a couple of those verses from Revelation, about the second coming and the millennial reign. So the first one is Revelation 19, 11-16. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now who's that? That's the church, yeah, that's us. Now out of his mouth goes, Jesus' mouth, goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself, Will rule them with a rod of iron, he is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. You read that in Psalm 2 as well. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and on his robe and on his thigh, a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's the second coming. Jesus comes back with us. Now we go to the millennial reign in chapter 20, verse 6. Just read one verse. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection, over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. So, this thousand years is repeated several times in this section of scripture, but basically, those who died in the tribulation will come back to life, the first resurrection. The rapture is a part of the first resurrection. The Old Testament saints will also come back to life and be with Jesus during this thousand year reign on earth. It's going to be an awesome time. We're just saying hello to Noah, David. We can say hello to Ezekiel too. So, the next section, the last section, is the judgment against the nation of Amnon. So, a bit of background. The Ammonites lived in what is now modern day Jordan on the opposite side of the Jordan River. So, we've been there, my family and I we have seen the rock city Petra. It's pretty amazing. So they were actually related to Israel. They were Lot's descendants. Lot was a nephew of Abraham. Now, they share the same ancient hatred towards Israel as do all their other relatives. Now, we know those relatives today as the Arabs, the descendants of Ishmael and Esau. So anyone who's related to Israel, going back to Abraham and Isaac, But it's not actually part of the promised people. They have this hatred toward Israel. And you think of all the Arab nations surrounding Israel. What did they do the moment Israel became a nation? You know, five or six nations attacked Israel all at once, many times, you know, over the course of a number of years. So the Arabs hate Israel. And that's exactly what it was like back then, too. So the people of Amnon hated Israel. They had this, what they call the ancient hatred. And so I'll read this scripture, verse 28. And you, son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord concerning the Ammonites and concerning their reproach, and say, A sword, a sword is drawn, polished for slaughter, for consuming, for flashing, while they see false visions for you, while they divine a lie to you, to bring you on the necks of the wicked, the slain whose day has come. "'whose iniquity shall end. "'Return it to its sheath. "'I will judge you in the place "'where you were created in the land of your nativity. "'I will pour out my indignation on you. "'I will blow against you with the fire of my wrath "'and deliver you into the hands of brutal men "'who are skillful to destroy,' that is, Babylonians. "'You will be fuel for the fire. "'Your blood shall be in the midst of the land. "'You shall not be remembered, for I, the Lord, have spoken.' Pretty serious stuff. So, thus says the Lord God concerning the Ammonites. Now, put yourself in the shoes of the Ammonites, right? Nebuchadnezzar takes the turn that goes to Jerusalem. And they go, phew, right? He's not coming our way. And they would have praised their gods and, you know, we prayed to the gods, look at how powerful our gods are and all that kind of stuff. It's just a false sense of security. Because what does it say in verse 29? While they see false visions for you, while they divine a lie to you. Well, guess what? Five years later, the Babylonian war machine came their way. God gave them five years to repent, but they didn't. And it's a dangerous thing, as we read before in 2 Peter three nine. it's a dangerous thing to mistake God's patience for his approval. And it says in verse 31, I will pour out my indignation on you, I will blow against you with the fire of my wrath and deliver you into the hands of brutal men who are skillful to destroy. Why? Because they were always out to destroy Israel. They hated Israel. And I'm going to read something from a bit further on in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 25 verses 6 and 7 which explains this. And you can apply this to the Arab nations around Israel today as well. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Because you clapped and danced and cheered with glee at the destruction of my people. yeah. Because you clapped and danced and cheered with glee at the destruction of my people. They were dying, they were being slaughtered, starving to death. And these guys were dancing and clapping. I will raise my fist of judgment against you. I will give you as plunder to many nations. I will cut you off from being a nation and destroy you completely. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Different to what's happening to Israel. Why? In verse 32, it says, You shall not be remembered. And a quote from Taylor Their ultimate fate will be worse than Israel's, and worse even than Egypt's, for they will be no more remembered. To the Jewish mind, nothing could be more terrible. No prospect of restoration, no continuance in succeeding generations, no memorial, not even a memory oblivion, all gone. Your nation is wiped out completely. Now, what did God say to Abraham? What did God promise Abraham in Genesis 12-3? I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. So, as a national thing, a prayer, you can pray for our leaders in government. Pray that they will recognize Israel as God's chosen people, so our nation can be blessed. Now, quick conclusion. What have we learned today? Sin grieves and hurts God more than we can imagine because one, it's hard for parents to discipline their children, and even more so for God because He loves us so much more than earthly parents ever could. Secondly, it's God's great desire to bless us, and it grieves him when we settle for second best. You know, imagine you have a, a son or a daughter who who marries someone who's you know, there might be an alcoholic or something, and you know that they're going to have a hard life. And you go, oh, I wish they'd marry someone else, but no, they will do what they will do. And so you, you watch them suffer, and it grieves you. That's what it's like for God. We choose things that aren't the best for us, and God is grieved. He says, I want you to have this. I wanted you to experience this, but no. And thirdly, every sin I commit is a sin Jesus had to pay for. Now. Another point we talked about was persistent sin hardens our hearts and in a practical way turns God against us. When we continue in sin, we are walking in a way which is opposite to God. And this is the opposite of abiding in Christ. If obedience and abiding lead to joy, as it says in John fifteen nine 9-10, then disobedience leads to misery and suffering. And guess what? That's what's happening to the nation of Israel. And another thing we learnt is about grace in Israel's darkest hour caused by their own deep rebellion against God. God gives them this beautiful promise that gives them hope for the future. As the church waits and longs for the rapture, so Israel is waiting and longing for the second coming when Jesus will come and take them as his own people and he will be their king. And they will no longer rebel against him and deny him in those days. And finally, sin causes collateral damage. We don't live in isolation. What we do affects others around us, for good or for evil. And because of this, the righteous suffer the physical consequences of sin along with the wicked. But eternally, we're safe in God's hands, yeah? So... Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for these words that we've read in Ezekiel. Lord, your heart breaks because of sin. Lord, I pray that our hearts will break because of sin too. Lord, when we sin, we grieve you. We hurt other people around us. Lord, we, we've made it more difficult for Jesus on the cross. And Lord, we just pray that sin will break our heart just the way it does yours. Help us not to be complacent. Help us not to be hard-hearted. Help us not to be conditioned to accepting the evil that is in this world as normal. Lord, keep us soft. Keep us holy. Keep us pure, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.